Hello and welcome to Cryptids Decrypted. As always, I am your host, Ashton McCauley. Uh, I'm, I'm a book writer. You know, I write books about cryptids, so I thought that gives me the authority to make a podcast about them because, you know, writing about them fictionally is the same thing as studying them in real life. Today we've got a real treat for you. I'm talking to Dr. Jeff Meldrum. He is most famous for studying Bigfoot. In an academic respect, he is actually a tenured professor that studies Bigfoot. So pretty cool, huge get for us. Uh, we actually saw him on the Hulu documentary that we did, uh, I believe, our last episode on. So this is uh, us kicking off the second season. But just right before we get started, thank you all for supporting this podcast. The best ways to support us are leaving reviews, sharing us with your friends, uh, going to my website and buying my books, or going to Amazon and buying my books. Or, hey, listen... If you've bought the books, uh, reviewing them on Amazon or on Goodreads is one of the best ways to help indie authors because it turns out it is really hard for people to click a five-star button or a four-star button or hell, even a three-star button. Literally, any review helps. So if you could go ahead and review my books if you've read them, that'd be awesome. If you haven't bought them yet, check out the Nick Fentner Adventures. They are available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, uh, or you can buy them directly through my shop, and I I send signed copies when you do that. So that is at macashton.com slash shop or Amazon, Barnes & Noble, whatever. Anywhere books are sold, you can just search The Nick Ventner Adventures, and you'll be able to find them. It's good monster hunting fun. I highly recommend it. I've got another one coming out, hopefully, this year. I'm working on it right now. Uh, but that's enough talking from me. Let's get to the interview with Dr. Jeff Meldrum. I'll talk to you at the end. So hello and welcome to Cryptids Decrypted. Today we have a special guest, uh, Dr. Jeff Meldrum. He's a professor of anatomy and anthropology at Idaho State. And if you're all in the same circles that we do, you've definitely seen him interviewed about Sasquatch before. Uh, Dr. Meldrum, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, welcome. My pleasure. Thank you. First, I was wondering if you could uh, give folks a little bit of an idea about your background as a researcher and what you work on most frequently at the university. Right. Well, as you said, I'm a professor of anatomy and anthropology, so I teach human gross anatomy in the health professions programs, that is uh, both introductory anatomy and physiology, as well as graduate level full body dissection um, courses, lab courses. <clears throat> and then for my research as an anthropologist, principally a physical anthropologist, I'm interested in, uh, in paleoanthropology, particularly human evolution generally, but uh, how it is we came um, to uh, be adapted to walk on two legs and all that goes with that. So, um, you know, as, as that implies, I work with uh, the fossil remains of, of uh, hominin ancestors. I, in order to understand those, I conduct... Uh, um, uh, you know, semi-naturalistic and naturalistic uh, studies of the movements of uh, humans and primates, uh, other pri non-human primates such as uh, monkeys and apes, and uh, uh, you know other experimental manipulations of of that human anatomy, electromyographic studies, force plate studies, and particularly interested in the footprints, obviously, as as direct trace evidence of that behavior and so the study of uh, fossil hominid footprints and uh, and therefore uh, a tremendous interest in in uh, the comparative databases of human footprint uh, trace as well as that of other other primates and and uh, and of course that branches out to, to an interest in tracking generally and and all the the aspects dynamic aspects of that uh, art and science and that's kind of where the interface with uh, Sasquatch initiated uh, from a professional perspective as, as an, a physical anthropologist uh, focused on the hominid fossil record and footprint record. Um, the uh, First, the prospect of, of another bipedal primate, another bipedal hominin or hominoid, uh, whichever the case may be more specifically. And of course, the prevalence of the footprint evidence, which is by far the most objective, the most 
uh, even though it, it falls under the category of trace evidence, I mean, it's something physical that we can examine and document and replicate and, and, and uh, catalog and compare and analyze. And uh, uh, so that's where my focus in this uh, investigation has, has been primarily branched out some other directions, hair analysis and other things like that, uh, comparative anatomy and, and film analysis and so on. Yeah. And I think that's interesting. It does tie in really well to your background, obviously, and your other research. Like it, it's a very logical intersection. I wanted to take people uh, back through your history a little bit and, and where your interest might have first come from. So I know that reading about you, you also, you grew up in Washington State, which is where I, I'm from and where I'm based right now. Uh-huh. Uh, I think you were on the eastern side of the mountains. I'm on the, I've been on the western side most of my life. Right. But I, I think it's interesting because if I, if I'm right, your interest first came from viewing the Patterson Gimlin footage, which is a, that's, that's an interesting introduction because it's, it's hard to kind of throw a stone without hitting any Bigfoot stuff in Washington state, but the Patterson Gimlin, that's, that's quite an introduction. Yes, it was. And, and that was literally my, my first uh, contact with the subject matter. I mean, I can recall very vividly the conversations uh, one evening at school <clears throat> as we were participating in a, a gym program and as each class was waiting its opportunity to go into the gym and, and, and uh, demonstrate our skills to our parents, um, there was a buzz amongst the students about this advertisement for the showing of the Patterson documentary showcasing the film. And uh, I had never heard of Bigfoot before. That was the first introduction, but uh, was very keen to learn more because already I was fascinated with human evolution and, and cavemen and, and uh, ape men and, uh, and uh, the uh, natural history and behavior of, of the great apes especially. And uh, so I can remember running home in the dark. <laughs> my parents didn't stick around for the whole program. So I was on my own to hoof it the several blocks down the road uh, to where our street was. And, and, uh, and as I've, I've said before, I can remember there m- must have been a Sasquatch lurking behind every big ponderosa pine <laughs> tree as I made my way across the school grounds. <laughs> But uh, sure enough, I got home and opened the paper, and there was the advertisement. And, and uh, you know, my dad was always very supportive of my interests and, and uh, hobbies and, and so on. And so it wasn't too hard to convince him to take me and my brother the next day to the showing of that film. And uh, uh, it, was, it was extremely impactful. I mean, it made a huge impression. And uh, I can remember... Um, you know, going to the library, looking for more information. Um, uh, the next year, as it turns out, I did a, uh, a report on Bigfoot. We were doing a unit on primates, and, and I happened to be selected to do, myself and, and a, another classmate, to do our report on Bigfoot, on Sasquatch. And the funny twist of, of fate it turns out that our librarian was the niece of John Green, the uh, journalist author who's, who'd written, uh, uh, well, actually, th- at that time, he had only written On the Track of the Sasquatch, and it had just come out. She had a brand spanking new copy, but she also had a file folder with uh, magazine and newspaper clippings relating to Bigfoot. Uh, she had you know, topical folders, as, as was done back then in the days before the internet, uh, before you could Google a subject. And uh, so it was a treasure trove for me in, in preparing my report. And I was the first that she entrusted her new brand spanking new copy of John Green's On the Track of the Sasquatch to. And so uh, that really, you know, set things in motion. I began to, to learn more about uh, the fact that this didn't, didn't just drop out of the ether. I mean, that this was a, a deep, seeded tradition in the Pacific Northwest. There were Native American stories about this. You know, there was the Teddy Roosevelt story about the, you know, it related in the Wilderness Hunter uh, of uh, this encounter up in the Bitterroot Mountains in, in Idaho, or not far from where I live now. 
and and so on. I mean, there was uh, just a lot of uh, of interest, and 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 I tended to gravitate to that, especially to the footprint evidence. As I was fascinated by these tracks and uh, and the uh, interpretation, the inferences that could be drawn from the anatomy, the observable anatomy, and the papers by Grover Krantz really drew me into the potential for applying. Uh, comparative scientific principles to the interpretation of these tracks and that there were distinctions. They weren't simply just enlargements of human feet. I mean, when you went and, and, and got a, a quote, Bigfoot rug, <clears throat> that, that foot symbol was kind of a, uh, a popular little icon, not necessarily related to Bigfoot, but just uh, a, the, an, a, a symbol, a clip art symbol back in the, in the 60s and 70s and uh you know there were rugs and all stickers and all kinds of things but it was a very uh a very uh unrealistic footprint so to see these tracks that were so real looking so many of them not all but so many of them and yet were distinct i mean i it was already clear to me that there were differences and then uh Grover Krantz's, some of Grover Krantz's papers drew attention to some of those differences and provided some biomechanical basis for the interpretation of some of those differences. And that really, really drew me in as well. <clears throat> I'm sure fueled my eventual interest in, in comparative anatomy and biomechanics is one of the emphases of my research program. So yeah, I'll stop there. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's, uh, so that's really interesting. And I know, again, reading about you, I believe one of your first introductions to Sasquatch evidence was seeing a footprint, right? Like, like out in the, like I'm in, in mud, I think it was described as having like very, very good footprint cast conditions and was very detailed. That's right. That's right. It, uh, it, it was actually an event that preceded that kind of uh, pulled uh, brought this uh, sort of dormant interest by this time to a head and it was uh, some interaction with Richard Greenwell at the International Cryptozoology Society. And uh, I was recruited or invited to assist with the evaluation of a piece of video evidence. And that just kind of blew away some of the cobwebs and reignited some of that interest and fascination. Because the uh, although the video was not of the best quality, it was good enough that that to my eye, there were uh, there were indications that that this could be the real deal. I, I couldn't readily point to a zipper, in other words, a proverbial zipper and uh, a metaphorical zipper. Anyway, so that got the the wheels kind of turning, and then a visit to uh, Dr. Krantz's lab, um, just uh, an opportunity to examine his cast, and then. On the return home from that very trip, uh, a surprise visit to Paul Freeman, who wow, really making yeah. the rounds early on. Well, yeah, I mean, Those I it, it was, and all kind of it was all tied together because while I was evaluating this video evidence and actually went to California with Richard Greenwell, he pulls out of his briefcase a copy of Vance Orchard's Bigfoot of the Blues, referring to the Blue Mountains of southeastern Washington and eastern Oregon. And asked me if I would write a book review. And as I, you know, read through this, and I mean, it almost seemed too good to be true. It was, you know, as if as if these people had the Midas touch. <clears throat> now, understanding with with hindsight and, and personal experience in the area, the circumstances were such that it uh, it makes perfect sense. I mean, the tracking potential in that region, due to the nature of the soils, the substrate, and so forth, and and the fact that these these guys, you know, were putting in a lot of time uh, running these these back roads and looking for tracks. And uh, anyway, I it was the process of of uh, reading that book, many of which many of those ex examples in the book were featured in Dr. Krantz's work. So that all the more motivated me to want to go to his lab to see some of this data firsthand. And you know, get the word from a, a fellow academician, and uh, you know, he was very, very open, very, very sharing and generous with his his uh, insights and data. Obviously, I mean, he was tickled that there was someone with my background and credentials that was 
showing an interest, I think, as well. But uh, <clears throat> after examining many of the copies of casts that he had in his collection, popping into Paul Freeman, who figured so prominently in, in much of this data, uh, and Wes Summerland, that we also visited Wes Summerland and saw some interesting interesting artifacts as well but it was Paul that had been up in the foothills that very morning and uh, in February the snows had just been melting back off of the foothills as soon as the roads were passable you know he would be he would be up there driving those roads and he'd found some tracks that very morning uh, according to his his testimony and and while I was a bit uh, incredulous <laughs> at first I thought hey we're here what do we got to lose let's you know it was just a short drive up into the foothills there beyond town to the east and uh, that was it was amazing I mean it's, it's hard to convey the impact of that experience because it wasn't just you know one ambiguous sort of you know debatable um, indentation in the ground it might have been a footprint I mean there was no question these were footprints. The only question devolved to, were they real or were they hoax? There was no misidentification. These weren't bear tracks. They weren't human tracks. So they were either Sasquatch tracks or they were clever hoax. And it wasn't just a few. It was a long line uh, along the stretch of, uh, of uh, restricted access, you know, farm access road. Um, just a, a dirt trackway, basically, through the fields and but again the the, the conditions <clears throat> there's a high content of this uh, you know pleistocene lust this almost talcum powdery soil there and when it it's wetted down i mean it picks up remarkable detail and uh, the these tracks although freeman wasn't unduly impressed by them thought that they were less than perfect so he wouldn't even bother <laughs> making a cast. I mean, what he considered imperfections to, to my eye were the very signatures of animation, the dynamics of a living foot uh, instead of a pair of, of uh, you know, ridiculous stompers uh, stomping out a, a trackway. And uh, uh, yeah, I mean, just thinking about it again, I just, I can remember that moment when it, when it's like this little, uh, this little, uh, well, at that point, late, later, it was like a little imp that was, that was asking me if I really wanted to pursue it. I've, <laughs> but, but that first, it was like I was pinching myself. That's what I meant to say, pinching myself, because I, I was like, is this, is this for real? How could he have done this? How could he have known that we were coming? You know, wh why else would he be motivated to create uh, something like this, even if, if indeed he was able to create it? He had no way of knowing we were coming. And um, anyway, so yeah, it was uh, that that set the hook. <laughs> yeah, set the hook deep and and lit a fire that that did not was not easily extinguished, because no matter what happened subsequently, the frustrations or obstacles or whatever, you know, you kind of keep circling back to that first experience, and. Uh, you know, I, I've seen these tracks, you know, I've had this experience and uh, it, it had a profound impact. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, so that's interesting. It kind of leads into something else I wanted to ask you about, because I, I can't imagine this is an easy academic endeavor to start. And I was wondering, you know, if you could speak a little bit to like, did you have any difficulty trying to to break into like basically having having a cryptozoology focus in a university or finding somebody to fund your research or being taken seriously. Um, right. Well, I mean, I, I had, th there was precedent in the experiences that Dr. Krantz had had. And I was a bit idealistic in thinking, well, you know, a, a Grover kind of had a reputation of being a bit of a maverick thinker. And it wasn't just Sasquatch. He had other ideas which were sometimes just simply ahead of their time by decades sometimes. I can remember uh, his, uh, as his graduate students were giving him uh, his, uh, his uh, not a memorial or a eulogy because he was still alive in the room, but, but his... Uh, um, um, I can't think of the proper word off the top of my head now, but, but uh, uh, we're talking about his career 
celebrating his career and uh, and kind of rattling off some of the ideas that he had in early in his career that he tried to promote and develop, but was you know kind of squashed, but now are received as conventional wisdom in anthropology. It was just ahead of his time. And, um, but being, being a bit of a maverick, I, I thought that he just was a lightning rod for that kind of pushback and that my career was, was pretty well established. I didn't have tenure yet, but I, had, I think I'd made a, a good solid mark uh, at that stage of my career, early career. And I came from a very prestigious program and, and uh, was involved with all sorts of projects and, and yet, in spite of that, <laughs> the the uh, the pushback was was very uh, very blatant, and not only in my department and and my campus, but from my discipline as well. And there were successes along the way. I mean, I got some uh, papers uh, uh, presented at the physical anthropology meetings to great. Uh, uh, interest and curiosity and interaction with my colleagues those times. But then there were other times, you know, about 50-50 when, uh, you know, two reviewers put the kibosh on a submission and, uh, and offer the most ridiculous, inane rationalizations, like uh, one who said, this is not a topic of general interest to the anthropological community. Uh, you know, give me a break. You know, now, just a few years ago, uh, true uh, New Scientist magazine, the, the British equivalent of our Discoverer Scientific American, a semi, semi-popular but semi-technical science news magazine, did a cover story with the top 10 questions in human evolution today. And one of those 10 questions was, are other hominins alive today? Uh, you know, that would never have been published 20 years ago. Uh, but now it's recognized that our family tree is extremely bushy with many branches persisting until the very recent past, at least based on the fossil record, the known fossil record. And uh, so the possibility is acknowledged by many, whether openly or, or uh, implicitly, that uh, Perhaps some of these lineages are still persisting. Perhaps there are pockets of relic hominoids, as I refer to them. That's interesting. So would you say it's, it is getting a little bit easier than it was to get into these sort of things? Like it is becoming more accepted in the academic communities? Well, it's, it's hard to judge. I I wouldn't say openly accepted. I mean, there's certainly a high level of interest and I see signs and have direct indication of uh, interest by the upcoming generation of newer anthropologists. Um, even here on my own campus, so we've had experiences with visiting assistant professors here temporarily, just out of very prestigious programs, uh, and some of our own uh, faculty members who, young faculty members who are very interested. They, they haven't been steeped in the pre-existing paradigm that these things can't exist and they've grown up in the in the age of cable t- tv and the internet where the flow of information is much more readily uh, accessible and they're very aware of the stories and and you know the good the bad and the ugly that's associated with this topic as with just about any any topic and so they're they're much more open but uh, they're also savvy, and I always advise to this end that um, there's still the shadow, the specter of of that uh, previous generation that isn't completely gone yet, and so there still are the old guard that are the department chairs and the society presidents and the journal editors and so forth. They are still the gatekeepers, and so until... Uh, you know, unlike me, <laughs> which uh, who was a little uh, uh, perhaps overzealous and dove into the deep end of the pool without uh, without checking for <laughs> any <laughs> obstacles under the surface of the water, um, I advise these young students to you know establish themselves in their career, get 
get uh, the skills and the credentials and the publication record and the recognition. And then once they have that job security that comes with tenure and have a little more academic freedom, that therefore they can turn those skills to these questions. So I see we're still, we're still about probably five years, maybe 10 years off before there's a, a real observable, to, to at least openly observable, um, like I said, I, I have my fingers on on the pulse of things going on behind the scenes and conversations and uh, and uh, correspondence that takes place behind the scenes, but um, uh, but they're not obvious to the onlooker outside looking in. I'm curious to what your opinions are of like I, I suppose the way that Sasquatch hunting or Sasquatch research has been commercialized or changed in the information age because it seems like while there's this boon of more information there's also a boon of history channel shows and like a and e and all this other stuff so i'm curious how that affects your work and what you think that means for the future of it well it's certainly a double-edged sword um, but you kind of have to work with what you have and so while there may be some potential pitfalls and, and some production companies are, uh, you know, have uh, fewer scruples. They, they don't hold themselves to, they, 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 they rationalize that what they're doing is providing entertainment. They're not in necessarily in the education business. They're certainly not in the scientific research business is, is by their own statements, oftentimes. Not all, but I mean, there are some. And so there are potential pitfalls and you have to kind of, go in with your eyes open and, and your guardrails up high in order to uh, avoid some of those pitfalls. But, um, but there are, as I said, you know, I was 50-50 chance of getting a paper published in the mainstream uh, um, uh, organizational or societal uh, conferences. Um, there are some uh, programs like NOVA, Nature, the real high echelon public television programming that won't touch this. They just won't, won't even touch it. National Geographic, they have occasionally, National Geographic magazine, um, not the channel. The channel is a, a different entity and has a broader brushstroke, but uh, that prestigious, you know, National Geographic channel or uh, program with the, with the little icon in the corner, you know, little uh, yellow border, um, they have occasionally touched on the Yeti, the abominable snowman and its history, but have never, to my knowledge, unless I've missed something, have never broached the subject of Sasquatch. Just taboo. But the other, you know, the, the, the other networks, they, they recognize it's an evergreen topic. That is that it, it, um, you don't, uh, you can't underrate the public interest in this. It's like, you know, occasionally I'll have <clears throat> producers who come to me and say, well, what can we do different? Well, how can we, how can we um, uh, approach this topic uh, differently? And, and of course they have limits. They have, they don't have an, a huge budget uh, to undertake an ambitious scientific. And like I said, they're not in the uh, business of uh, financing expeditions or, uh, or such, or, or only in very rare instances. But, uh, you know, I, I tell them, to be quite honest, I, and I appreciate that you want to raise the bar, but no matter what you do, honestly, even if, it's, even if it only evokes criticism, you'll get a huge market share of the audience because people are so fascinated with the subject, they'll even watch bad stuff. And, and support it. <laughs> I think and, that's so I mean, present here in Washington, too. Like, there's it, no, like, it, to my knowledge, at least, there's no good, uh, like, Sasquatch Museum or anything like that in this area. There's a bunch of, there's plenty of bad roadside ones that are not. Yeah, sure. But, like, there's nothing like, you, you think something like that would absolutely find an audience out here, especially. You would, yeah. And it, it just takes someone that's, that's, uh, that's got the motivation, the wherewithal, and the means to uh, undertake, you know, the skills. It's not, it's not easy to do a real successful, uh, I think uh, Cliff Berkman has, has set a high standard for uh, an approach to a, an educational uh, science-based approach to 
um, to the topic. There is no, there's no getting away from the commercialization and that, you know, that's not necessarily bad just because something becomes commercialized. You don't throw it out the window. I mean, look at Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, you can get more commercialized and yet we don't, uh, we don't just discount those, those individuals who, uh, celebrate that holiday for a specific reason don't throw it out the window because it's been commercialized you know and so um and commercialization can itself be a means to an end um beyond simply monetization it can be a means to uh to uh, for outreach and public education i mean the the selling of quality books that contain good information, for example, or, you know, when I sell a replica footprint cast, uh, I don't have much patience for people who are critical. When I, when I observe the impact that handling that physical object, setting it on their mantle, showing it to their kids, you know, or going, me going to a, a grade school classroom and inspiring another generation of inquisitive minds, you know, the impact that that can have, um, I, I make no apologies for that at all. And if you can't, you know, if you can't appreciate that, if that, if that is lost to your, uh, your uh, purview, then, you know, that's your problem. <laughs> I think it's kind of pivoting back to the, the commercialization and the different types of programs. Uh, you know, it, I was actually first introduced to you very recently through the Hulu documentary, uh, Sasquatch. That, that that so I had uh, I think I'd come across your research before when we we did our Sasquatch episode way back in the first season and we're on our fourth now. But we were we recently watched a Sasquatch documentary for an episode and I was curious what your thoughts on that were. Well, I'm embarrassed to say <clears throat> you said on Hulu. Yep. Do you know? Do you remember who produced it? I'm embarrassed to say that I've been involved with so many of these <laughs> and there's often is such a lag between the time that I actually do the interview and the airtime that it, it's really hard to keep them sorted out, which is which. So I, it's not bringing to mind immediately the details of that particular episode for me to comment on. So this one was, this, this was a particularly interesting documentary. This one ended up going into more pot farming in Northern California and a homicide involving a Sasquatch. Is that ringing any bells with uh, David Holthouse? That's not, that's not. Oh, and that's interesting. This this happens sometimes is I'll be interviewed. They'll give me, and I try as I might to, to sort of preview and pre-assess what's the project is before agreeing to an interview. Um, sometimes, you know, they'll come and, and what they, they'll do a very standard um, scripted uh, uh, list of questions that, uh, you know, touching certain bases and it'll end up, <clears throat> And yet they won't have shared with me what the ultimate uh, um, uh, plot and storyline is. And then they just plug me in at the appropriate place for a soundbite. You know, I, I usually I've, I've rarely been any more. At one time, it was always a much greater risk of being cited out of context or juxtaposed. I mean, the old school, they would, uh, you know, um, uh, unwittingly uh, juxtapose me and some armchair skeptic somewhere and uh, make it sound like we're having this point counterpoint debate, you know, like on 60 minutes or something. Uh, and, uh, and that wasn't the case at all. Now they're pretty good about being um, true to the spirit of the question and answer and context so I'm sorry. Yeah, no, oh, no. Ring any bells at all. <laughs> so that's it's interesting that you bring up the juxtaposition because that documentary does something where they they juxtapose two different types of Bigfoot sightings. In my opinion, the documentary ultimately doesn't end up being about Bigfoot. It's a big bait and switch. Uh, but uh, the but they do juxtapose some interesting sightings. So they have people who sound like they've had real sightings, and it almost sounds like real trauma about encountering these creatures. And then they have people who say that Bigfoot can teleport and it's yeah. uh, like an extraterrestrial being and all that kind of stuff. I, I'm curious how you reconcile those two different types of. Uh, oh, I don't. I don't. Yeah? The, 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 the latter, in my opinion, is is not scientific, at least 
doesn't lend itself to the type of objective evaluation that we would hold other forms of evidence to. I mean, it can't be replicated. It can't be measured. It can't be, rarely can it be observed. I mean, there are some photographs that are brought forward that try to uh, suggest the depiction of, of uh, something <clears throat> disappearing into a portal or an orb of light. More often, it's pollen in a flash on a camera, you know, at night. Um, so, no, I don't make any attempt to reconcile. Now, you know, I'm, I'll be the first to admit I'm wrong if someone demonstrates the, the uh, reality of those phenomena. I, I'm not saying that they don't exist, uh, uh, that they don't uh, transpire. But I'm just saying that the, they right now are nothing more than anecdotal claims or opinions, people draw an opinion. And I found many, uh, an example where someone clearly has been unable to um, reconcile a, for example, no bones, or why don't, you know, <laughs> or claims of footprints that start and stop, although no one has ever demonstrated or documented such a case, but the stories are perpetuated. They take those kind of things, they can't rationalize them uh, by means of a biological naturalistic explanation. And so they drop back and punt and resort to these extraordinary anomalous explanations that uh, are even more problematic to try to explain. I mean, I can, I can offer, offer all kinds of explanations for why footprints in snow suddenly stop. One is wind. One is snow falling from an over, overhanging tr uh, bough on a tree. I mean, there's all kinds of reasons uh, uh, anyway. So, yeah. um, you know, if ever there was a, an application for the principle of parsimony, and I'm not a huge fan because it is so often abused and misapplied and misstated. But basically, I mean, what, what the real principle, it doesn't say that the simplest explanation is most likely to be true because that's not what, what was intended at all. The intent was that science, a scientific approach, progresses by falsification. That is, we can't prove every case, but if we can show one exception, we can falsify and reject a hypothesis and then formulate another, go back to the drawing board and formulate another. So if we're going to do that in a logical pattern, a logical progression, we would start with the simplest explanation. So until you can justify rejecting that hypothesis, until that point, you're, you are not justified to add more extraordinary explanations or factors. And that's what parsimony is about. So rather than jump, <laughs> jump from, you know, Bigfoot <clears throat> is a biological species, but I haven't been able to find a skeleton. Therefore, it must it must uh, not live here, but but step through a time or an interdimensional portal and die somewhere else. Before I'm justified in doing that, I first have to be able to negate. The, and there are so many reasons for not finding for not not finding oh, yeah. a skeleton that are much simpler and much more straightforward than invoking a interdimensional portal. <laughs> yeah, I think the example that comes up pretty frequently <clears throat> is just like you don't find uh, bear skeletons that often. Right. Yeah. I just, and we know uh, that we know there are bears. Yeah. Doesn't mean that they can teleport. But so I thought I thought that was interesting. I really it actually kind of made me upset because I, I didn't like the way that it was juxtaposing people who seem to be having real world experiences or real world uh, trauma around this. And like it, it, it did seem like they had a bit of an agenda, which is why I was curious um, about your involvement in it. But that makes sense that if you're getting yeah. so many requests and you don't see the end product, I can right. understand that, you know, uh, in the end, my attitude is sort of if I don't do it, in other words, if I don't put a objective, rational face on the subject, um, and, and there, are, there are some issues where I, I draw the line. I just will not participate in a program that, that uh, will not give any serious traction to a, a rational approach. Um, but but, but uh, up to that point, if I don't do it, then who are they going to get? So if I can take an opportunity to try to elevate, to try to educate, to advocate for a rational, naturalistic explanation, to at least continue considering that as a much more viable explanation, you know, I'll take the opportunity to do it. 
yeah. as an educator, you know. Absolutely. I think that's the, I mean, that's the right approach. Because you're right. I mean, they will find somebody. They'll always find somebody to yeah. do oh, that. Yeah. Especially if it's, they're cutting in filler. Like, they'll, they yeah. can find what they want. Ping-ponging back to something we talked about earlier, actually. Because they, you know, they talk a, a bit about the Patterson-Gimlin <clears throat> footage. And I was curious how, you know, so it, it sounds <clears throat> like what you made of it at the time, it was a big sort of watershed moment for you to see that. I'm curious if your opinion of the footage has evolved over the years and what you make of some of the criticism, because they interview somebody named Bob Hieronymus, who yeah. claims to be the one in the suit. And he's, I, I always forget if it's uh, Patterson or Gimlin that is uh, still living, but he is their neighbor. Sure. Um, and I, I just, when that came up in the documentary, I was like, oh, this is kind of, kind of mind blowing. If that, if this guy says he's the person in the suit. Right. Well, um, yes. So, so going back, yes, my opinion or my, the impact, the, uh, my perspective on the film has evolved over time. I mean, my initial, as I said, my initial impression was, uh, was kind of overwhelming. It was extremely impactful. And I mean, I, I just, it, it struck me as so natural. It just seemed like it was part of that landscape. And, and, uh, you know, I think that was, on, on a personal level, a little prescient of what my understanding is now of how now I look at it as an experienced scientist and experienced biologist. And I see the adaptation. I see that it looks so natural because it is appropriately adapted to the habitat and the behaviors attributed to it. Um, at, there, there was a point, especially when I first kind of became involved with this, I was always very reluctant to, to draw much attention or, or too much attention, put it that way, to the Patterson-Gimlin film. I, I thought there was a risk of putting too many eggs in one basket. I mean, I was focused on the footprint evidence. And it was in part that focus because as, uh, that, that, that uh, caused me even uh, to have even more confidence in the film because as I became more and more familiar with the diversity of the footprint record, uh, and I shouldn't say diversity in, in the sense of uh, the breadth, let's say that, the breadth of the footprint record, then I saw how significant the footprints from the Patterson-Gimlin film site were and how uh, remarkably consistent, you know, and with, with the emerging model of, of functional morphology and biomechanics of that track, of those tracks. And remember, a, a footprint is not, a mold of the foot, but it's a record of that dynamic interaction between the foot and the substrate. So it, it records those kinematic aspects and that reflect the functional morphology and, and biomechanics of, of an animate foot, not just a static model of an anatomical organ. And, uh, and so you know, as the years went on and, and as I became more familiar with the film and, and began looking first at, like I said, at the footprints and then the interaction of the track maker with the footprints and then the associated anatomy, locomotor anatomy of the track maker, not to mention getting to know Bob Gimlin, who is the survivor, Bob yeah. Gimlin, getting to know him well and being confronted with these various pretenders to be the man in the first suit. Bob Hieronymus is just one of, of a number of individuals. Uh, so, well, some of which didn't lay claim themselves, like Romney, George, George Romney. Uh, everyone pointed to him. He, he was an employee at, at the A&E um, film in, uh, company. And, and uh, someone had said, oh, well, that, that looks like you know, Romney. Because he was a big, big guy with kind of a forward lean and I guess a, a slow walk. They actually, in one documentary, juxtapose him just as they repeatedly do Hieronymus. And there's no comparison. I mean, the, the resemblance is so superficial. Yeah, someone might have drawn attention to that superficiality, but I mean, you got to get beyond the superficiality and demonstrate uh, what's, what's uh, at the root of it. His limb proportions, his breadth, his, his height and everything, they're all wrong. And, uh, not to mention the foot <laughs> because uh, of my particular attention to the foot and, and it's uh, remarkable uh, flat and midfoot flexibility. Um, so I, you know, I, I repeatedly say I'm as confident as I can be in that film short of having stood there on the sandbar and witnessed it myself firsthand. 
I mean, I can't say a hundred percent because I wasn't there, but I, but again, sh- as confidently as I can say that short of that, uh, I'm, I'm absolutely convinced. It's just, you know, anyone who says, Oh, that's just a man in a fursuit. That statement alone immediately betrays the fact that they are absolutely ignorant of the, of the, uh, technicalities and the science behind it because it's anything but just a man in a fursuit if it's a man in a fursuit it's the most uh uh accomplished uh hoax that has ever been undertaken i mean even johannes prohaska who was the probably the expert at the time viewed the film shortly after it was captured and his conclusion which is you know available publicly it was in, he was interviewed uh he said it would have to be if it was a hoax it would have to be hair glued onto the body of the actor and he said it's a very difficult job it would take probably eight hours it's only been done once in hollywood bill munns informed me who's a great student of uh, the history of cinematography and monster creature effects uh from a from a, a costume and uh, makeup perspective but the uh one of my favorite films as a youngster was uh, altered states and when uh, william hurt you know externalizes his ancestral dna and emerges from the isolation tank as an australopithecine well here was an actor with the hair glued to his body but guess what it looks like a lean <laughs> athletic human actor with hair glued to his body it doesn't look anything like a hulking, massive, you know, uh, endomorphic uh, hominin uh, with muscles rippling under the skin and, and uh, all of the consistent anatomical features of a small brain, big faced, heavily muscled, <laughs> you know, massive uh, creature. So why, why has, if that was done if that could be accomplished in 1967 why was it only done once in hollywood why why is there no uh, aren't there example after example and every every time an example is is uh, foisted on us for, by the skeptics it pales i mean you know my kids in grade school there was a, um there was a production by a british uh bbc television um, and uh, uh, Chris Packham was the producer. And he set out, I mean, his objective from the get-go was to try to debunk, make a, a, a splash for himself by debunking the Patterson-Gimlin film. And it was so comical because here they, they show it to this, I can't remember who the, the costume, uh, the creature uh, uh, costume designer was, but he was in Jim Henson's Creature Shop and he's watching the film and he's going, Oh, oh, this is obviously a man in a fursuit. And here's how we do it. And the camera pans left and, and there's uh, the actor donning a costume. And he has a spandex, you know, undergarment with, with sculpted foam rubber muscle inserts to, you know, like a, like a superhero costume today. And then he has a four-way stretch fur costume that he pulls on that has like eight inch hair that covers up the the collar at the neck that cover and that covers up the wrist because he's putting on separate gloves, separate booties, you know, and at the waist. And uh, oh, well, see, wait a minute though. They didn't have spandex in 1967. They just started experimenting with injected foam rubber, and and uh, Chambers got a honorary Oscar for his pioneering efforts at making foam rubber um, appliances for eyebrows and ears and and muzzle on the planet of the apes actors first time you couldn't go down to kmart in 1967 and buy a foam rubber pad to put under your sleeping bag you know on the floor it just they weren't readily available then and they didn't have four-way stretch fur they had fur cloth that had about the consistency of a carpet you know and and the flexibility and so anyway that's the whole point it was so, it was so ridiculous and besides the feet that they Dawn had big toes sticking out the sides, like any ape costume worth its salt would have, you know, mm-hmm. 
and, and then they tried to film him with the cameraman running and jostling his camera and making it blurry and in and out, which that wasn't the case at all. My little kids, you know, my grade school sons at that time watching it, look at this and they show the side by side and they go, that doesn't look anything like the Sasquatch dad. Hmm. I mean, it, it's not rocket science. It's uh, from the mouths of babes, you know? So anyway, it's just, uh, it's, it's frustrating that there is a, a, such a level of naivete and overconfidence. And, and if you say it often enough, you don't have to defend what you're saying. You just, you just repeat it often. It's like politics. It must be true. You know, yeah. I think that's uh, it's very true in the information age. For sure. Yeah. If yeah. You say, if you, I mean, because everybody's got their own platform, right? So everybody's an expert. Sure. I mean, hell, look at me. I'm running a podcast on cryptozoology. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> but um, we're, running, we're running a little low on time, but I've got okay. uh, two, two more questions for you. Sure. Uh, maybe we'll get be... to them both. Maybe we'll get to one. We'll see. I'll, I'll try to um, do more succinct. No, no worries. This is great. Uh, I'm really enjoying this. Uh, but I, I did want to ask, so there are, you know, gosh, I, we've covered so many damn cryptids. Uh, are there any, are there any other cryptids that you think are viable or have any sort of science-based evidence? Because I've found that like, aside from uh, Sasquatch, like possibly the Yeti and anything in the ocean, uh, I, th there's not a lot, a lot of it seems to be to make a buck. Certainly. Well, um, you know, I, I, I must say that uh, given the a, a dearth of, of spare time um i have kind of uh, uh focused my attention on on relic hominoids which include other man-like monsters around the world like the yeti and the uh the orang pendek the russian almas the year and i just was trying to kind of catch up because of, of for a little writing uh project uh, catch up on the yowie which is a, a real enigma, but you know, there, there are shortcomings. There are inconsistencies uh, in, in some of these things. Um, they, but sometimes, sometimes authors uh, miss the forest for the trees. They, they don't take the whole picture. They reduce things down and, um, I, you know, cryptozoology has always been kind of the, uh, you know, the ugly stepsister that uh, it never has gotten the acknowledgement as a legitimate discipline, uh, as, as a, a, a pioneering or frontier science. Um, and, uh, and there are some good examples, I think, though, where the principles, if not the mainstream institutionalized cryptozoology uh, where the principles of relying on you know ethnobiology and uh, knowledge of by, by indigenous peoples of the local fauna I mean I, a friend of mine uh, Russ Mittermeier um, introduced me to a, a, one of his colleagues that spent a lot of time in the forest and had had this just this list of, of new species particularly primates to his credit discovery of new primate species. And one of his principal methods was to, you go into a remote village, you, you become friends, you know, you, you imbibe and eat together. And then you ask who's the best hunter and you go down the, and you ask the hunter, well, okay, name every animal that you've ever seen in the forest. And invariably there'd be something that was new, was unusual. And uh, it didn't take long before a specimen was brought in or alive or dead even, or uh, alive even sometimes. Uh, and that's cryptozoology. I mean, in, in, in one sense, that's cryptozoology. Um, so it's, it's, it's a very legitimate approach to the science. Now, the skeptics say, well, there've never been any great discoveries, you know, and none of the poster children, uh, the poster specimens of, of cryptozoology have been have been discovered but hey uh, that's not completely true and there's always another discovery to be made something's unknown until it's known <laughs> yeah my favorite example of that is the giant squid right like, yeah. yeah giant squid it went from cryptid to to animal in our lifetime like exactly yeah 
So I thought that's interesting. And then the last thing I wanted to ask you was, you know, you talked about there not being any big funding for expeditions or anything like that, but I am curious if you were able to get some, some crazy research funding for something like, what would you do? What would, what would you do to go prove the existence of Sasquatch? Well, um, the, the, I think there's two, two, uh, thrusts, two, uh, lines of, of, uh, research methodology that I think have some potential. One is, is, uh, the uh, uh, improving technologies of aerial survey combined with thermal imaging and also LIDAR. There was an interesting paper not too long ago where uh, they were actually using LIDAR to identify and catalog, or at least senses, large-bodied mammals in the forest. The LIDAR will penetrate the forest, and just as it will reveal Mayan temples and roads and buildings, um, the resolution and capabilities are, are increasing, improving to the point that they can also pick out large, large animals. The second one, and the one that I am putting some more eggs in and, and uh, am about, uh, you know, preparing proposals for is uh, the application of environmental DNA to cast the net more broadly and uh, sample uh, a community more, more thoroughly. It doesn't solve, it's not a silver bullet to the biggest impediment we've had in DNA studies. I mean, well, the biggest impediment has been bad science. We won't go there right now, but, but uh, when DNA, and first let me tell your viewers, there is no Sasquatch DNA recognized as such. There isn't, period. But when DNA that may have been Sasquatch was examined, invariably it comes back as human. And, the, and one of two conclusions is offered explanations is offered. Either it was contamination by handling, mishandling by of the specimen by the witnesses, or two, it was uh, just simply misidentified human hair, you know, for example, hair. Um, the third possibility is what hasn't been considered sufficiently because of time and resources and funding. And that is, if we are very closely related to this species, even more so than a chimpanzee, then the differences that will distinguish us, you know, may fall in in the range of less than one percent, a half a percent of uh, of base sequencing. And if that's the case, most of the studies that have been done up to now, I mean, they look at one mitochondrial gene, and uh, you know, or a little snippet of a nuclear uh, gene over here, just a few thousand bases. That probably isn't enough, almost certainly isn't enough to distinguish such a closely related species. But it takes a lot of funding to do sufficient sequencing or genomic um, sequencing to, uh, to make that uh, resolution. So I'm hoping that there will be, <clears throat> you know, uh, philanthropists, foundations, some of the, my past uh, financial um, uh, benefactors that uh, will be interested in, in a proposal. I'm, I'm collaborating with um, Neil Gemmel, who is a, a molecular biologist in New Zealand who headed an international team applying these very techniques to the waters of Loch Ness. Got a lot of publicity. Oh, so that's the one with the eels. Yeah. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I happened to meet one of his past graduate students and through, through him, be, you know, got into a dialogue with Neil and He's enthusiastic about turning attention to the question of Sasquatch. So I think there's, you know, there's a great hook. <laughs> you know, you talk about the, if not the commercialization, but there has to be, since, since the normal routes of, uh, uh, and venues for funding are not, probably not available, certainly not available, um, there are al- alternatives and you, you have to make a pitch and you have to, uh, 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 you have to spark some enthusiasm and intrigue. And I think Neil with his history on that topic will, will bring that in part to the table. Hopefully I'll contribute some as well. <laughs> Absolutely. And no, I think that'd be a, that'd be an incredible match for sure. Yeah. Well, uh, Dr. Meldrum, thank you so much for coming on the program. Uh, finally, I wanted to ask, is there anything you'd like fans to know about your work, uh, where they can find it, what you suggest of yours, they go check out. Well, if they haven't read Sasquatch Legend Meets Science, that's really, I think, uh, uh, the first base that they need to touch. And, and uh, uh, beyond that, 
uh, I edit an online uh, scholarly journal with the assistance of, an, of a bona fide editorial board. It's a peer-reviewed registered journal, the Relic Hominoid Inquiry. And if you Google that, take it right to you. It's on the ISU web server. Um, but it provides a venue for scholarly articles, uh, in-depth book reviews, um, news items, uh, editorials, commentaries, and so forth that I think your viewers would find really very interesting and informative, focused on the question of relic hominoids around the world. Perfect. I'll put a link to those in our show notes for everybody to check out. Very well, good. thank you again. You're welcome. That is all we have today for Cryptids Decrypted. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. I always love when we can have experts on the show, and I know it's gotten rarer and rarer as the seasons go on, but it just turns out when you when you spend a lot of time lambasting cryptids, it can be a little hard to get people to want to come be interviewed on your program. But I think that... Uh, I think Dr. Meldrum was incredibly interesting and uh, a great get for us. So if you have anybody that you think we should interview, or hey, maybe you are somebody who wants to be interviewed, uh, reach out to us, uh, cryptidsdecrypted at gmail.com. That's a real it's a real email address. You can email us and uh, we'll look into it. Uh, or you know, hit us up on Twitter at castdecrypted or on Instagram at cryptidsdecrypted. Because you know, it turns out cryptidsdecrypted on Twitter was apparently taken. I don't know who those jokers are, but you know, get them out of here. Anyways, thank you for listening. We're going to have a slight break between episodes. It's, I wanted to do every two weeks again, but we're going to do every three weeks because unfortunately John is down uh, with the sickness right now, but uh, he will be uh, back in good, I'm sure, very soon. And then once we can get to recording that, we will, and then I will edit it and get it out to you. We're going to be talking about the Loch Ness Monster next time, something that we've ignored for quite a while and that I kind of teased we were going to do earlier in the season, but then uh, we ended up watching a Bigfoot documentary instead. Anyways, that's that's quite a, quite a lot of talking at the end for me. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Uh, like I said, please hit us up uh, and let us know what you think. I will see you in a few weeks. Bye-bye.